The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies. And fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Uh Uh-huh. And tonight, we're going to talk about affluence. We're going to be talking about rolling in the Benjamins. We're going to be talking about money, that sweet, sweet thing. Or more specifically, we're going to talk about money in the media. And the way the media portrays affluence, especially the American Western media portrays affluence. Uh, Because, of course... What? (laughs) I detect some bitterness. There is a little bit of bitterness, actually. Yeah, I I would say that, actually. I mean, not in that um, Generation X millennial uh, shown a life of wealth and comfort my whole existence and then only to be denied it as I grew up. You know, none of that. Um, Okay, maybe a little. Um, (laughs) But more along the lines of, you know, as I've gotten older, I've come to see the portrayal of wealth and affluence in the media in a less kind light than I did when I was younger. Mm. Um, but we can get to that. We'll get to that eventually. So I think, Don, you mentioned you wanted to start talking by talking a little bit about what society is so that we could actually kind of work our way towards what affluence is. And then we'll talk about the media itself. OK, so what is society, Don? OK, this is uh, and this I think it, it's going to come definitely back around to what you were getting at. Uh, we've mentioned before that people tend to think of of society, of the world as a homogenous whole. Mm-hmm. Yep, and definitely. I think, yeah, I, th- I think it's important to not look at it like that. Cause what okay. you end up getting, this ties into a bunch of other stuff too, is they'll see one kind of, I guess, lifestyle or attitude as the norm. And mm-hmm. then anything else is, is a derivation or a, a deviancy from that. Right, there's a standard everyone has of how you should live, and then everyone else is a variant of that. Right, and in reality, that's not the case. Like, you mm-hmm. you, you don't get any society now or ever that was predominantly one big attitude. What you, you kind of get is a bunch of different little groups that bump into each other, and a lot of them will have enough similarities that you don't see them as an aberration, even okay. though they have the, their own little twists and, and takes on that. Well, wait a moment. I mean, generally when we look at it, let's take a look at an example where I may or may not agree with you. Uh, let's look at the baby boomers. I think they're right. a perfect example. Um, because they were all born within a very narrow window, and at a certain period in American society, they generally did have a lot in common. Um, they lived very similar lives. And they generally were one largely homogenous group, or at least that's how they've traditionally been portrayed in the media and how we generally tend to look at them. Mm-hmm. Would you argue that's incorrect? Um, This is where I got to say it is, but it isn't, but it is, but it isn't. Thank you, Dr. Obvious. Okay. <laughs> Not the most useful comment I've ever made. No, no. <laughs> 
But again, it's that idea, like you said, this is how they're they're portrayed. And and we've mentioned before that when you look at any kind of time period, mm-hmm. it's usually defined after it happens. Like people looking back and True. you're kind of taking the, the most dominant aggregate things. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been kind of under baby boomer tyranny for, for a few uh, generations now. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the reasons you'll see like a lot of people in, in power now, they're older people, they tend to look back at this weird mythological leave it to beaver 1950s where everything was great and happy. Mm-hmm. And we tend to think of the 1950s as that dad came home from work smiling in his suit and mom had the sundress and pearls on and the kids already did their homework. And, blah. and when mm-hmm. you think back to that era, there was a lot of different things going on, like that image that was portrayed was kind of the um the the upper middle class uh suburban kind of lifestyle it was that's true like but it was, was but it hmm? was the result of the fact that you know dad could have a job mom didn't necessarily need one and dad's factory job probably really did pay all the bills and more and he got great benefits and you got places like Detroit, for example, which was at one point the wealthiest city in North America. And black, white, yellow, green, purple, didn't matter what you were. As long as you could work in the factory floor, you made a good, solid living and could live a pretty good life. Kind of, but you've also, you've already hit at one of the problems. Because if you look at any representation of family in the 50s from the 50s, mm-hmm. dad didn't work a factory. He had some kind of white collar job that... He worked in the office doing, well, you never really ever found out. In most media, that's true. Yeah, that's and, true. And this, and this is what I'm saying, and that was the image. When you go back, when you talk about, say, ethnicity and, and, and color and that, there was a lot of strife going on back then. There was. Oh, yeah. Between, uh, between the uh, black and white communities, there was definitely still a lot of strife going on. Um, well, not, not just still, that. There was well, racial remember... segregation and everything else was happening. That's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the era of McCarthyism. Yes, it was. See, and and it's it's again. I'm not just the Korean s- War. Yeah, like it, and I'm not just pooping on the '50s because it happens with any time that mm, true. There's always good and bad going on, but the focus tends to 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 shift on very narrow aspects of things at any given time. Mm. And then that's why when we go back. And we define, okay, what were the 50s? Well, it was ducktails and leather jackets and motorcycles. And dad was, was you know, the, 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 the breadwinner. And he, he was this, this level-headed guy that you could go to with any problem. And emotions were for ethnic people. And, mm. the, and, and you, you kind of, you'd get little bits and pieces of other stuff. But again, that would be the aberration. Um, right. Because we look back at, say, the greasers. With with the, the the which were gang guys basically right yeah yeah and we find it kind of cute and 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 quaint but back then remember that the, those leather jacket hoodlums and listen to that rock and roll people were just as terrified of that as they were like the gangster rappers in the nineties and stuff yeah oh no no I know I did live through the eighties which was the fifties two I do remember you know <laughs> people being terrified of uh, of otherwise ridiculous looking gang members yeah mm-hmm. yeah. And it was that case. That's true. I, I Okay, I see your point. I actually am starting to see your point very clearly. I guess it also goes with the idea that so much of our view of society is tainted by the media, which is as we're going to be talking about. And one of the yeah. side effects of that is, is the media is never portraying reality. 
True. Ever. It is always portraying a simulation of reality that they have put together within the heads of the writers, producers, directors, cinematographers, set designers, whatever. It mm-hmm. is an approximation, a simulation. It is not actual reality. Anything that's not a piece of news, and even then, is not necessarily reality. And so mm-hmm. our view of the 50s, for example, and 60s, and any era, really, is totally shaped by media perceptions of that time rather than actual reality of what it was really like. And it's a very simplified version of it. Yeah, you're also kind of um, hitting on another a point that people don't think of. That narrowing and that focus isn't always sinister, and it's not always to push an agenda. A lot of it, it's mechanical, because if you're the news, you've got X amount of time to get that story out. Mm-hmm, that's true. So there's a tendency to focus in on um, what are the quote-unquote important parts by whatever criteria the people making the decision make that decision. Right. Um, and this is one of the... One of the um, one of the, 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 the tricky things that, that kind of gets lost in the shuffles, ultimately the media, which again mm-hmm. is not a homogenous whole. Right. But for the most part, the media only has one agenda. Mm-hmm. And that's to get you to partake of more media. Yep. You know, the paper wants to sell papers and half our audience is now going, paper what? Okay. They, <laughs> they used to have these things called newspapers that were like the internet in, in, in printout form. They literally were at one point. Mm-hmm. Even even the news, like um, mm-hmm. one of the things that kind of screwed us in North America was in the 80s when you had the 24-hour news channels come out and news had to pull a profit. Mm-hmm. Even in the glory days of reporting when news didn't have to pull a profit, you still had limited time. That's true. So you'd just get the highlights. That's one of the, um, one of the things that's kind of changed over the years that... Um, even I think in our day, we were just starting to see it mm-hmm. was the idea that everybody nowadays in North America is like terrified of crime and that, even though it's been going down for the last like 40 years. Oh yeah. Actually, it's not quite true. I, mm-hmm. I just saw some numbers the other day in like the last, I think it's a year. There has actually mm-hmm. been an uptick like the last okay. year or two. We actually have had a very slight uptick, for, but literally for the first time in 40 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you go back to the, the glory days of the 50s, we're still below in most categories. Yes, we are. That's true. But people don't see it that way. And part of the problem is because when you started having 24-hour news coverage, they always have to find a story and they need something to engage. Mm-hmm. So you'd start hearing more about things that happen farther and farther away. Yep. Like when I was a kid, if there was like a shooting in LA, it might get a note on the news, but you, it, it was considered too far away that to affect anybody here. We didn't care. Right, There's yeah. more, there was important shit happening right here, right now. Mm-hmm, exactly. When you get to that 24 hour news cycle, cause they're always looking to fill time. You've got mm. so much more time to fill. Yes, you they do. would, yeah, you get these expansive coverage from outside and it kind of alters people's view that, Bad things are running out of control because there's so much more of it, but it's not mm-hmm. that there's more of it. There's You're just hearing more about it. Right. Actually, you know something funny? This is a complete aside. Uh-huh. Um, so I watch, uh, some, I watch um, the Taiwan 24-hour news channels. I actually uh-huh. watch them sometimes. And um, 
my wife is from Taiwan, so I watch so I watch the Chinese news sometimes. And what's really funny is Taiwan is one of the most peaceful places on earth. It uh-huh. literally is. It's like super peaceful. But they've got like six twenty four hour news channels that have to <laughs> fill content. Right. And literally, and I'm not kidding you, they will do stories about how so-and-so's restaurant has, like, a new dish that everyone's crazy about. And you'll get, you'll, and you, like, they have to fill that time. And so what they mostly do is, because there's just not that much crime, and there's not that many accidents. So they mostly just fill it with, like, local interest stories and puff pieces. Right. It's astounding (laughs) how much local interest in puff piece they can actually fill in celebrities and literally but it's like on the level of celebrities break up it's on the level of celebrities stub stub their toe like because they mm. literally have nothing to fill it with and they're just <laughs> desperate to constantly fill this news cycle with something right <laughs> and if you think our news is bad at least our news at least says okay nothing interesting is happening local locally we'll just go for the global stuff they kind of yeah. defaults that way. Whereas for some reason, they don't tend to focus as much on global news, not the channels I watched anyway. So they'll mostly just focus on like this incredibly mundane local stuff, which is kind of cute in a way, but it's it's very different. Yeah, well, it's probably closer to uh, what you remember the news being like when you were a kid. Probably, yeah. There were a lot more local interest stories back then. There's still some, yeah. but yeah, not as much as there used to be. Yeah. So um, and that's... Hmm? Oh, I was gonna say, and that's one of the one of the the, the weird aspects about um, our perception being colorized by the info we take in. Absolutely, it is. Absolutely, it is. So, society is a bunch of different groups that have similarities to each other, and that from a distance might look like they're one big group, but they're actually a bunch of smaller groups, kind of jockeying with each other. Is that the yeah. way you're describing it? Yeah, I think for myself, and I'm gonna. This is kind of entirely my own theory. I kind of break it down into three major groups mm-hmm. that you've got government, mm-hmm. you've got the economy, which would be the business world, mm-hmm. and you've got mm-hmm. the people. Mm-hmm. And uh, some people would put religion in, but I think religion comes from the people part of it. Right. So it's an aspect of that that category. Okay. And I, I tend to look at it that way. Those kind of serve as good broad categories because... Um, one thing that you see in North America, mm-hmm. and this kind of gets into getting towards what we're, we're our, our main focus, as as much as we ever have a main focus is going to be. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you tend to see those three groups compete, mm-hmm. like for 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 dominance, and and especially like say in North America, there's always a back and forth uh, between government and business. Yes. And that's that's what you always see play out because business says, "Oh, you'd all be better off if government would just leave us the hell alone." And government says, "Well, we have to keep track of business, otherwise they'd be pouring radium in the water, and you'd all be mutants at this point." Woo-hoo. Yeah, and and yeah, but not good mutants. We're talking oh, like nineteen oh, fifties, okay, not the X Men or anything. Oh, okay, but... <laughs> I, I want to shoot fireballs from my fingers. Oh my god, I so want to do stuff like that stupid human race fishing me up anyway um and it it goes um my favorite example of of how the universe works is 1984 Mm -hmm. and 1984 is interesting because orwell wrote it specifically against communism Mm -hmm. that was the the whole 
But over the years, as the threat of communism waxed and waned here in North America and Mm -hmm. as communist countries read the book, it's one of those things that people read all kinds of different things in that it's actually warning about. Mm -hmm. And my favorite part of it is the A, B, and C. Right. That and it's it's a uh, I think we've mentioned it before, but just in case when you Winston better, gets yeah, you better go yeah. through it. Yeah, Winston gets like the 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 communist handbook, and they talk about how society works, and they divide it into A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. A are the people in charge. B are the people who want to be in charge, who are just under them, and C is the, like the masses, the proletariat. Mm-hmm. And what'll happen is B will get C because C is by far the most numerous. In, in in Orwell's description, A and B are both what we'd call the one percent. They're the the upper crust, mm-hmm. and B will get C inflamed against A because they're the masses. They're overwhelming in numbers and 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 pull. They'll overthrow A. B becomes the new A. A becomes the new B, and the proletariat go back to being assholes because neither side really cares about them. <laughs> hmm. Yep. In some in some ways, I think that's mm-hmm. how things really work. <laughs> well, I think that things I think that's how things have worked. Mm-hmm. I think some of modern society has messed with that a little bit, right? A little bit. I mean, keep in mind we have not seen an actual revolution like that in a very long time. Or and, have we? Hmm? Or have we? Or have we? Then not in that form anyway. Not in a proper revolutionary form. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've we here we've seen them. But not in uh, the Western world. Like, I mean, we've seen it happen in Eastern European countries in our lifetime. We've mm-hmm. seen some of that in the Middle East and Asia, you know, in South America. I mean, it does still happen, definitely. Um, but right. in North America, we've kind of sidestepped it mostly through um, affluence. And, right. you know, as long as we keep the masses happy, they're pretty good. And um, we've also sidestepped it through um, having a democ- democratic government. Where mm-hmm. the people feel, whether they really do or not, that they're actually making change, that they're actually in control. They're able to right. let off some of their steam by voting those guys out of power and voting the other jerks into power. Um, <laughs> and so as an end result, there's this fake sense of control that the public have. Uh, Dan Carlin would say that it is basically a pressure valve system right. and that um, it's just there to let off steam. And it does. It really does. It it gives the people a sense of control. Also, relatively speaking, as long as you got your TV and everything, you're happy. So why revolt? And mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why that kind of revolution has largely not taken place in North America for a very long time. Right. And isn't likely to for a little while. We'll see. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's, I think we're uh, – unless radical things happen. But then again, we're, we now live in radical times, so you never know. Well, it's – it's a tough call. I do, I do think that you're absolutely right. And this is kind of one of the uh, as hidden benefits of having like a capitalistic economic system. Mm. And I say that because a lot of people think capitalism and communism are, are political systems. They're not. They're economic systems. Mm-hmm. But it's that idea that you can have something. Mm-hmm. That you can buy something. Buying things gives you a little sense of autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, you have some selection again. It makes you feel that you're in control. Yep. Um, even the idea of like a free election, it's 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 like stock market for political idea. It's buying and selling 
like like politicians. Hmm. One way to look at it, yeah. Which there's good and there's bad because again, there's a lot of when you commoditize everything, it means that people are always in competition for everything, whether mm. they are or not. True. And one of the problems that you get in North America, which I think starts segueing directly into portrayals of affluence, mm-hmm. is the health of the economy is based on money moving around, not people having money. Right. Yeah. So you've always got to come up with new things for people to buy. Mm-hmm. And you've always got to come up with like um, companies maximize profit. Yes, they have to. Yeah. And, and one of the things that people don't realize that that works is it's the, it's the, the cost benefit thing. I, right. always use the, I use the example of say um, two companies make widgets. Mm-hmm. Uh, one company which sells, uh, is it better to sell 100 widgets to 100 people? For one dollar, mm-hmm. or one widget to one person for a hundred dollars. Is this a quiz? Kinda. Like, what would you say? I would say it's better to sell a hundred widgets to a hundred people for one dollar. And everybody says that, and that's totally wrong. <laughs> okay. Because if you think about it, if mm-hmm. a widget costs fifty cents to make, mm-hmm. and I sell a hundred of them, I've made fifty bucks. Right, hundred for a buck. If it's fifty cents to make, and I sell one of them for a hundred dollars, I made ninety nine dollars and fifty cents. Yes, but and here's the catch: you're right from a pure numbers point of view, one shot situation. You are a hundred percent right, though. I I I agree with that. But my logic is: well, if I only have one customer, he may never buy another widget. But if there's a hundred of them, they're likely to buy more widgets from me again. And it's it's definitely true. And this is kind of where you run into um some of the interesting problems we get mm-hmm. because companies, especially a bigger company doesn't think long-term like that. They don't have to. That's true. Next year, we'll just come up with a brand new kind of widget exactly. and we'll market it and everybody will have to buy that. And this, this is why um, a lot of people mm-hmm. can't wrap their head around say marketing. Right. And they'll say, well, why would you want to sell like $500 sneakers? Like, that's horrible. Nobody can afford them. No, enough people can afford them to make it worthwhile. They've done all the research. They've crunched the numbers. That's true. And then what they, they'll end up doing mm-hmm. is a lot of times through marketing, you'll uh, – oh, there's a term for it that I can't remember where something doesn't have practical value. You mean – you make... hmm? You're not talking about intangible value. Uh, it's it's something more specific though. Where basically, you make the status of owning the thing the value of the thing. That is a form of intangible value, but um, okay. Um... Yeah, there was a specific name for that. So it's the idea right. where I can, I can make sneakers that are no better than twenty dollars sneakers, but sell them for a hundred and fifty because I have the latest sports ball hero guy's face on them, kind of thing. Hmm. Yeah, well, it's branding mostly. Um, yeah, you can use branding and the trust and the sense of uh, of uh, status that comes with that branding to then turn around and sell your sneakers for a higher price. Yep, yep, definitely. That's what that's what modern marketing is literally about. It's actually about branding. It's not about marketing. Yep, and it exactly. it ties it ties into one of the uh, the individual drives that, that a lot of people have, which is. Because again, we're human beings are pack animals. It's that need 
to advance through the pack. Mm-hmm. Like the need to be, if not the alpha, then further up the food chain. Right. And that's where you'll get that idea, like, say, high fashion stuff is a way of demonstrating affluence. And that's where if I don't have actual power, Mm -hmm. I can kind of fake it amongst my peers through gratuitous displays of affluence. Hmm. That's true. Mm Hmm. Yeah. You can make them think that you're special. Yeah, and, and that's that's the whole point. Like, everybody remembers being a teenager where if you didn't have, like, the correct brand of, like, like jeans that you were like, oh, you must be the poor kid. You suck. Ah, ah. Yep, yep. Yeah, you don't want to admit that you bought your running shoes at Byway. <laughs> Not that I ever did. Mm-hmm. And mind you, 99% of our audience has no idea what Byway is, so I'm not really <laughs> that worried about it. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of true, isn't it? But anyway, okay. man, we're, we're old. Yeah, we are. Okay, so <laughs> I think Byway only existed for maybe a decade. So that, yeah, it was kind of the original. Here was a, it's, folks, we're basically talking about one of the first or early dollar stores, basically. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, they're basically what we call dollar stores today, which don't really sell anything for a dollar. It, anyway, whatever, dollar fifty, two dollar <laughs> stores, whatever. Anyway, okay, so um, we've got marketing and branding. Okay, so. Are we going to talk about affluence now in the media? Are <laughs> yeah, we ready? Cause I, yeah, because I think that's um, those attitudes mm-hmm. kind of dictate the ebb and flow of how affluence is presented. In a lot of ways, yes. Um, and you've gotten back to it. I mean, ultimately, the media exists mostly to sell us a product. Whether that product, because we live in a capitalist system, is the media itself um, or whether it's an actual product that's um, connected with the media in some way, but it's definitely selling a whole lot of stuff. Um, In fact, usually it's selling many things at the same time. Okay. Um, And so with that in mind, okay, where do you want to start with affluence in the media? See, this is kind of tricky because again, you notice there's, there's always this ebb and flow Mm. that um, I'm looking back, like say that I, I still hold, my theory that we live the same 20 years over and over, Mm -hmm. which again, I call the seventies and the eighties. And you can see that difference Mm -hmm. because when you go to say, um, the, the Mm seventies, I wouldn't necessarily say things were more austere, but there was more of a focus on practical. That's because it was still, um, a generation, both making the media and in theory, consuming it, that actually required practicality. Remember, the, right. that was a generation that had come out of the Great Depression. Right. That was a generation that were only a step or so removed from farmers or factory workers or immigrants. That generation that, of course, things had to be practical because it had to last, right? I mean, right. It had to be, there had to be a practical element to it. Otherwise, you wouldn't buy it. Right. Nobody bought disposable crap. I mean, that would be stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, I mean, so it was all about being practical, and right. and then you get into the eighties, and that totally changed for a little bit. Speaking of stupid crap, yep, there we go. Because <laughs> um, where consumerism became an end in and of itself, it really did. Um, and I don't think that was the first time. 
No, but I think the 80s, as you would say, kind of perfected it. The <laughs> yes, 80s was the era that really perfected the consumer culture. They finally figured out the right way to market people stuff. Basically, substance over, sorry, style over substance mm-hmm. to um, to get people to watch and buy and consume stuff that looked and felt and seemed really good on the surface but had absolutely no depth or staying power or anything to go with it. It was right. just pure style, pretty much. Yeah, which which wasn't exactly new. No. Um, that, that, I think, started uh, in the 1920s. Yes, sounds about right, the whole Roaring Twenties thing. Yeah, because that was uh, Ed Bernays. Yep. Who, uh, just to, to sum him up, he's Mr. Burns from uh, The Simpsons. Uh, I'm not quite sure I'd go that far, but okay. Well, kind of is. There's there's a catch. What he was in actuality is he worked with uh, Sigmund Freud's niece, I believe it was. Edward Bernays was Sigmund Freud's nephew. Oh, okay. Was it by, Bernays, but it was I, by I, marriage, wasn't it? Was it? It might be. It's it's possible it is. I was under the impression... Okay, so as far as I, I know the story, Edward Bernays is Sigmund Freud's nephew. Okay. And Sigmund Freud wanted to get his book published in the United States. And so he mm. sent Bernays a copy of his classic book on psychoanalysis. And Bernays basically read the book and thought, this is the most genius thing ever. This is how people sell stuff. I should be using this for advertising. I should be using this for marketing. Right. And thus, Edward Bernays became the father of modern public relations and marketing. Because prior to Edward Bernays, everything was about proving that a product was uh, logical, reliable, practical. It was all about appealing to the sense of logic and reason of the audience. But Bernays realized that the audience was filled with unconscious desires. And that if you did things like uh, getting a product or a brand associated with um, something positive, mostly human needs, in the audience's heads then they would come to see that product as a solution to their to fulfilling those human needs. And so as an end result, they would buy them. Mm-hmm. Um, a very simple example of this that we see all the time is, um, say, a restaurant commercial. A commercial that's for, say, McDonald's, for example, or Burger King, whatever, whatever restaurant you choose, pizza, it doesn't matter. Um, right. What they're doing is, if you look carefully, they're not selling you the food. Think about that. They're not. They're actually selling you a, a bunch of happy people who are happy because they're eating McDonald's food or Pizza Hut or whatever. And they're saying basically, you will be happy if you consume this food. That's what they're actually selling in those commercials. They're not selling that. They occasionally will sometimes be selling the food as a recipe for hunger. That will happen to another human need. But mm-hmm. generally speaking, they'll be selling you some human need. They will not be selling you the actual product itself. And that's true for everything. Car commercials, commercials for watches, pretty much everything. Every ad you see on TV is using that strategy. And it all comes from Edward Bernays. Yep. I just did a quick look up. He was a double nephew of Venny's psycho- psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud by virtue of his mother, Freud's sister, and of his father's sister, Martha Bernays Freud, who married Sigmund. There we go. So it was by marriage, but he was the nephew himself. He wasn't the um, he wasn't married to his Freud's niece or anything like that. Yeah. There we go. Good to know. Yeah. Um, so, and there we go. So Edward Bernays basically started all of that stuff. That's absolutely true. Before mm-hmm. Eddie, there wasn't 
um, that kind of advertising. You'll see a little bit of it, but they didn't really understand it. It wasn't basically a science prior to yeah. that. And Edward Bernays made it a science. And if you go out and look up Edward Bernays, or especially the documentary the BBC did about him called The Century of the Self, you will basically have your mind blown. Uh, <laughs> Edward Bernays is the most influential person of the 20th century. He yeah. may actually be one of the most important people of the 20th century as well, and yet almost no one has actually heard of him. Yeah. It's Unless insane how much Simpsons. he affected us. What? Unless you watch The Simpsons. Have they actually mentioned <laughs> Edward Bernays? No, but if you see pictures of him later on in life, he's basically uh, he's basically Mr. Burns. The old one is Mr. Burns, yes. Yeah, yeah, right. basically. Mm-hmm. But he 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 did, and again, it was this um, it was this attitude of selling things mm-hmm. that he'd hit on, and 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 as I recall, he did use a, the a lot of the psychoanalysis research, mm-hmm. especially like the stuff Freud did, and he he like like developed that for specific ends mm-hmm. and it's um a lot of like what we consider marketing and that comes out of that and a lot of yeah like you were saying a lot of what we consider society comes mm-hmm. out of that idea of marketing right well prior to bernays it could be argued that people were citizens and then mm-hmm. post bernays it could be argued people are consumers right yeah i mean that's... it's a it's um <laughs> I mean, it's a semantic difference, but I think you could make a solid argument about that. I could, I really think you could argue that he's one of the key engineers who helped transform society, Western society, from a society of yeah, of citizenry and participation to just passive consumers who buy stuff, yep. and use it to satisfy their human needs. Yep, and I think that ties into um, part of the ebb and flow of of how you would depict affluence in the media comes from reconciling that idea of we are consumers and it's by being a consumer that we express our humanness mm-hmm. that we've been sold and our capacity to engage in that. Right. Like that was one of the things going back to my quintessential example in the seventies, there was a lot of um, things portrayed. There was a lot of austerity. you started to see, um, the lower end of society, I guess, mm-hmm. portrayed in the media in sympathetic ways. Mm-hmm. Like on sitcoms, like dad wasn't some guy who worked in, in an office somewhere and that you would have like blue collar families being depicted. Well, hold um, on a sec, Tex. Uh-huh. Um, as someone who listens to radio plays and is somewhat familiar with 50s television and such, I have one word for you. Uh-huh. The Honeymooners. Right. Um, also, there's another famous sitcom oh, that I'm completely blanking on right now. Uh, radio play one that was, oh, crap, what was it? That's basically the same as, it's like, it's not the Honeymooners, but it's along those lines. Are you thinking of the bas- Bakersons? No, but they're another good example. There's another okay. one, and I'm trying to remember. But the key point is, again, that there was a, it'll come to me in about five minutes. Um the key point is is that no, the lower classes have always been there in the media. And in fact, I would argue actually, if you go back towards the media of the radio play period, especially when things, times were harder, mm-hmm. and uh, the 50s, you'll see a lot of that in fact. There's a lot right. of blue collar. It, the, it's the cycle, right? I mean, the affluent portrayal, I would say is a product largely of maybe the late 50s, definitely the 60s. 
Right. By the 60s, they were desperately trying to sell uh, the baby boomers who were starting to grow up and their parents who were affluent at that time. They, because of the post-war boom, they were definitely trying to sell them a new lifestyle right. and a new a new way of seeing things in a new world. And I would argue that that's where you really start to see the whole affluence thing. I can see why you're saying it's the 70s, but I'd say that's actually a result of the 60s. And in fact, okay. the 70s was going back to the 50s again. It's your whole cycle thing, right? Yeah. Um, so again, in the 70s, things got a little grittier again for various reasons including the fact that society was starting to have problems again crime etc mm -hmm. i think that um there was a lot of turbulence in society and the media reflected that and of course the baby boomers at that point were going to university and they were starting to have protests especially since they didn't want to go and die in vietnam right um and so society was in turmoil at that point so you saw a lot of that and the media reflected that again and then mm -hmm. That was the 70s. And then once things calmed down, we got the 80s. I think I would add a caveat to your caveat. Okay, sure. Because <laughs> I do think you're right. But I think um, what we're kind of bumping up against is that idea that you never get a homogenous whole. Okay, that's true. That, yeah, once that, again, you're right. You're right. Yep, that's true. Yeah, and that's and that what you'll what you'll see is um, that, that uh, again – you get to the the uh, the fifties, people were starting to have have some some bucks to spend, right? You get near the end of the fifties, going into the sixties, affluence was what was portrayed, but you you still had people who didn't feel that. You still had people that came out of that history of rebuilding after World War Two, mm -hmm. and that was where you had the more I guess you'd say like blue collar kind of That's entertainment. True. And you get that kind of bumping up against each other until one becomes prominent. Right. That's true. And I think what happens with that is, is like you were saying, um, it ties into the economic scale. Right. That if people don't have a lot of disposable income or they don't feel that they do or they don't feel that things are stable, you see things shift more towards, I guess, what you'd say, like the, the, the blue collar nitty gritty entertainment. That's true. And when they feel they can indulge in that, mm -hmm. then it shifts more towards, you know, displays of, of, of affluence and wealth are accepted and, and predominant. Mm. Okay, I can see that. Because you saw that at the beginning of the 70s was when you had like all your, uh, your like exploitation films and that. Mm -hmm. That were always about like some poor schmo in the bad part of town or some guy that just came back from Nam and had a bad deal there. And now he's mm -hmm. striking out against like the man and authority and all that kind of stuff. Right. That's true. And if you remember going into like say the middle 70s, the, the rich privileged asshole was always the villain of the film. Yep. Because they always wanted to knock down your arcade so they could make their golf course bigger kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And then you got to the 80s, uh, when the mm -hmm. 80s started, uh, people felt there was more, there was, there was more money. People started spending. I, ironically, we find out towards the end of the 80s, it was all on credit and things change again. Mm -hmm. um, That's true. But it's interesting because when you look at the beginning of the 80s and you look at, say, film, mm -hmm. the way they portray rich and poor is really weird because the rich guy is still the villain. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's the the guy at high school. He's the leader of the popular kids, and they're always picking on you. Right. Yep. True. But you start seeing 
you know, the, the quote unquote poor kid is, is the hero. Mm-hmm. But what that means starts to change because I can remember y- you look at like, um, mm-hmm. uh, the example that keeps coming up was, uh, 16 candles. Okay. How so? Well, Molly Ringwald was supposed to be the poor kid, right? And Right. And you look at the house her family lives in. Like, I have what's considered a decent job, like, say, middle-middle class kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And and the house that her quote-unquote poor family is living in, in California, is like three times the size of the house I live in now. Yeah. And she, she has her own car that her dad got her. It's, it's, it's a used car, but... How many people in high school, their folks would buy them a car at all kind of thing. Right. And that's why in the 80s, when when you had this this idea of conspicuous consumption Mm. being acceptable, that idea of who the poor people was really starts changing. Well, remember at that point, not that they weren't before, but at this point, Hollywood is kind of stuck. Because Mm -hmm. remember, Hollywood is all about um, portrayals... uh, of Hollywood is all about aspiration, right? It's always about portraying an aspirational world. You know, the kind of things that you wish you were part of. So even if it's portraying the, you know, the poor downtrodden working class girl and that, it still tends to portray them in a very positive light because they still want to be showing a dream, right? It's still Mm. meant to be a dream that the audience kind of could be living if, only their life was just that little bit different or whatever. <laughs> right. Um, so as an end result, it's, uh, it's, it's really tricky. As you said, they were, they were stuck. I mean, they want to portray the world as aspirational, but at the same time, they also still were in the shadow of new Hollywood at that point. So they right. still wanted things to be a little bit gritty. I mean, there was still that call for like social responsibility and all that from the seventies that they were still dealing with echoes of. I see right. your point about 16 Candles, and I think that's actually a very good example. I, I do mm-hmm. actually, I see your point. You can see that shift, especially as the 80s goes on, where yeah. things become more and more removed from reality, you could argue, and more and more idealized. Yeah. Um, and you could, and going, and going back, I would argue that, yeah, if you look at stuff from the 70s or even the 60s, it's much less idealized than the stuff that would come later. The modern audience, some of who may be listening to us, especially millennials, probably don't realize that about just how um, removed from reality our media really is. Yeah. And was, yeah, and and, thing, and things that you, at one time the audience really did demand an aspect of reality to their media. Now yeah. any aspect of reality that pops in the media is like amazing and is considered gritty and like mind-blowing <laughs> and that. Yeah. That guy had to brush his teeth. Oh my god, so exactly. much realism. Those guys, those, those guys actually went. You know, like they went to the bathroom and they peed. It's like, oh my god, um, no. <laughs> you mean you don't? Oh my god. Well, oh, there I, is that. I think part of that too comes from um, mm-hmm. the idea that the media, mm. not not being a homogenous whole, you have to kind of look at who's producing stuff, right? Because when you look at your big Hollywood productions. Mm. They're always trying for that middle ground because you want, you're spending a lot of money. You want the maximum audience. Mm-hmm. So you try not to do like when you get to say the eighties because everybody felt upbeat. Nobody wanted to see the bad part. Well, exactly. When you're happy, you don't want to see things that are going to drag you down. Yeah. Duh. So they, you, you wouldn't see like 
say a lot of homeless guys except for comedy value mm-hmm. in in an 80s film because that would remind people that you know there are poor people in that exactly that it, but when you get to like the 70s when you had the exploitation films those are very small filmmakers mm-hmm. they didn't have the big budgets they didn't have to therefore pull in big revenue to to for the movie to be success and it came out of that idea that you know this like leave it to beaver hippie bullshit just isn't how it works and that's why they made all these like dark gritty angry films mm-hmm. because the people making them that was closer to what they thought life was like right and that was where you get that push and pull and then what happens is when those films start getting popular because again they're resonating with 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 people mm-hmm. the big companies usually referred to as Hollywood has to adapt to that and mm-hmm. bring as much of that in as they can while still reaching that mass audience. Right. Like that's why I think I still say that uh, commando killed action movies. Okay. The, yep. Yep. You've talked about that before. Yeah, Cause that's that bridge. That's how you get from like your, your 1970s, dark gritty disturbing film to your Mm. bright happy 1980s you know just as violent but in an upbeat kind of way film yeah that's true commando is definitely the bridge um Mm -hmm. there probably is one or two other films i suspect that probably are going in that direction but Mm -hmm. yeah commando is definitely the bridge um although one could again argue that the even back in the western days i like it's cyclical right? right i suspect even the westerns went through phases like that where there was probably a trend towards more realistic westerns at one point mm-hmm. and then probably there was the more fanciful ones became popular and it goes back and forth even back in those days i bet yeah um so there 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 has always been romantic action stuff i mean commando didn't invent that it also didn't invent the gritty stuff either right i mean god look at some of the pulps um <laughs> But, again, yeah, it, it's cyclical. But mm-hmm. definitely for the modern era, I'd say you're right. Commando definitely uh, left its mark. It became the template because it was so successful and everyone loved it yeah. for that kind of movie. Uh, to yeah. do that kind of just action hero movie that we're familiar with today. Yep. And, I th- and again, I think that all ties into the, uh, the ebb and flow of the economy. Mm, true. And how uh, people's financial standing and their perception of their financial standing affects their entertainment yes definitely because the 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 pulps are a great example because they were like Mm. quick and brutal and that came out of an era where people needed cheap disposable entertainment because you didn't have a lot of of wealth going around in society yep and that's what what made that popular and then you get to the 50s and you have more like mass entertainment and you also had the idea in the 50s there was a focus on the future. Mm. That that was the atomic age and we had rockets and we'd travel to planets and again you never saw like downsides to things because everybody felt upbeat. Yeah. And it's the same thing like I said when you get to the beginning of the 80s you very seldom if there was a downside it was muted. Mm-hmm. Like again like the action films. Um, That was the era where you got instead of the villain doing things mm. they threatened to do things right because it's it's 
it's disturbing if if like the 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 bad guys come in and kill your family and and like Jeff Goldblum rapes your maid and stuff. It's mm. disturbing, but in the seventies it appealed because that's how people felt. That's what they saw. Like yeah, they felt crime is out of control. Nobody had any money. You know, everybody was like taking what they could. Well, you again, get... some of that's a reaction though to the '60s stuff, yeah, which was very uh, look. You know, James Bond comes out of the '60s and everything. The '60s stuff tended to be very uh, high flying, not as realistic. Um, yeah. tended to be so. Again, we're going, we're looking at a great back and forth, right? Because mm-hmm. when you get to the end of the '80s, it was it Black Monday, yeah, when when the economy tanked, and yep. then all of a sudden, like. There isn't as much wealth going around, and out of that, you get the 90s. Yep. And grunge, and yeah. a lot of really unhappy people. Gen X, yeah. And it's and it's not just the unhappy, it was that idea that any kind, and, and this is one of the weird ironies, generally, any kind of display of affluence was looked down upon. Mm-hmm. Because, like, the economy had tanked, people were still working their way out of it. You know, time times were 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 a little bit tougher and and such. So yeah, the the grunge scene came out of that. It was um, it mm-hmm. became trendy. Like hipsters will wear labels. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm I'm wearing like a tied t shirt. Aha! I'm ironic. Well, that came out of like the late '80s, early '90s, where people would wear a tied t shirt because they could only afford clothing at Goodwill. Yeah, that's true. That's that's where that came up. The, the, the rampant flannel was because it was like cheap and you could, you know, you could get it at like the discount store. Okay. Yeah, it's true. And that became the thing because the people didn't have, have money in general and they looked upon the wealthy as the guys that fucked it all up for the rest of us. Hmm. Which they kind of did sort of. Yeah. There's there. It's, it's not entirely untoward, but like I say, you, you see all of that kind of thing, and then that becomes the zeitgeist, and then everything goes towards that. And then what you end up with is people spending 250 bucks on a cheap-ass fucking flannel shirt because they want to have the proper grunge look because there's always that desire to be the number one guy in the pack. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. You want to be the most grungy in just the right way. That's exactly it. And yep. it's funny because I saw like... um. If you've ever seen um, Metal Evolution, mm-hmm. the TV series, he does a grunge episode and he interviews the grunge guys. And I got to say, I still think most of the grunge guys, like the grunge bands and, and that, I still think most of them were pretentious douchebags. Right. But watching the interviews, I can kind of understand why they came across that way because they're all saying when grunge took off, they were already moved on. Like that, that was the, the scene back in the day. Mm-hmm. They were moving on, but anybody getting a contract, it was to play this this grunge stuff that got pounded into the ground. And again, it's the same thing that happened to punk in the seventies. It mm-hmm. got marketed, it got an image, and next thing you know, you're paying like two hundred and fifty bucks for a hand me down shirt kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So I can Capitalism. understand. Yeah, and I can understand. That's one of the downsides. I can understand why it made all them people bitter. <laughs> oh yeah, I can see that. Hmm. Yeah, there were a whole lot of unhappy people. Yeah. By the way, just completely out of uh, the answer is Fibber, Fibber McGee and Molly. Oh, okay. Yeah, there I we go. I was thinking of Fibber McGee and Molly. Mind you, there is also Amos and Andy too. <coughs> okay. But the, 
but the actual show I was thinking of of middle class, you know, family struggling. That was Fibber, Fibber McGee and Molly, if I remember right. That's the show. Yeah. Okay. Um, there was Ozzy and Harriet, but if I recall right, they're actually more like middle upper middle class. Yeah, they're that's not actually working class. That's more the Leave It to Beaver thing. That's kind of yeah. the prototype for that. Yeah, it's the original Leave It to Beaver. So wealth in the media tends to be portrayed depending on the mood of society, which makes sense because, of course, the media itself reflects society. Yeah. But don't – isn't there a way in which it also, though, um, is shaping society as well? Like just just as um, it reflects society's dreams, I mean the people who make this to some degree are – can use it to um, influence society's attitudes on certain things. Yeah. Like one of the things that's just long disturbed me, long disturbed me, is that idea that the rich are just like us. They just uh-huh. have a little more money, but they're just like us. Uh-huh. And that you especially saw after the financial crisis, you saw a huge number of those like undercover boss shows and everything like that, yeah. which were just completely designed to um, show that, no, no, that rich dude, you know, he... If he if he just hung out with you, you'd discover he's an okay guy, and he <laughs> he'd feel your pain. And you know, inevitably, at the end of that episode, like the rich guy gives all the employees at the McDonald's he works at like bonuses or whatever, or, you know, and promises to make changes and everything. I mean, come on, this is pure one percent propaganda bullshit. <laughs> okay, it is. It's the in its purest form. Uh huh. <laughs> and everyone la- and people lapped it up. I mean, but the truth is, it is. I mean. No, trust me, those rich people do not do they're not like you and they do not care. They really really do not care. Some of there's, them are okay, some of them are assholes. It's like any group really. But well, the truth kind, is they generally do not care. They're too busy. Well, there's money. kind there's kind of a catch to that though. Okay, go ahead. That's just <laughs> the, one of my pet peeves. Yeah, and and I don't think it's entirely unfounded. And you're right that, yeah, oddly enough, around 2008, 2009, there were a bunch of guys at the top are awesome. Because that was also the era of, um, you know, the the, the rich guy who judges you. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, Yeah. it's the beginning of the apprentice period. Well, not just apprentice, but there was that, um, what was it, like Dragon's Den and then the 100,000 derivations of that that they did. Yep, that's true. Where rich guys, even the idea where, like, you have a business and some like guy who's better at that business comes in and yells at you until you fix your business kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, part of that is definitely propaganda because you know, who's it that owns the companies that make uh, entertainment? Rich guys. Ah, coinky dink. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, there was that, you know, social revolution, eat the rich attitude going through society because a lot of people had lost their 401ks. Yeah. And so... That's literally an example of the media manipulating society to try to pacify them and say, no, 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 they're okay, guys. You should, you should just accept them. Um, it's, that's what it is. It, it, it literally is the, them trying to manipulate society and probably being fairly successful at it, too. It, it could be. you got to remember, too, though. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's an extra step because you can't just um, – whip something on the public and then they completely like go in for it. You have to register with something that's already there. Mm-hmm. And I think the extra step was that um, you had by the late nineties going into two thousands, it was kind of, it was the eighties again. Right. So conspicuous displays of affluence were, were it. That was, that mm-hmm. was a big deal. 
Right. But you had to be the proper kind of rich person. That being an entertainer or a sports guy. Mm, true, true. And if, if you were, then you were allowed to be as like ostentatious as you want. You could drive your solid gold limousine wherever you wanted. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and that was perfectly cool. Right. And I think what you kind of had that weird shift uh, to what you're talking about mm-hmm. was it was um, the idea of, of why, like, say, a sports ball person can become rich and it's acceptable. Mm-hmm. Is because the, the, the story that's always attached to them is they were like a typical working class kid and they worked hard and they practice every day and now they're reaping the reward. That's exactly it. I mean, and yeah. it is literally an example of uh, people coming up from the working class. I mean, that's what mm-hmm. sports car- sports stars are. They're, in theory anyway, working class kids. Yeah, yeah you're so, exactly right. And it's the same thing with musicians that, you know, they, they, they've got a talent for putting words that rhyme together and now they own like more money than God. So that's cool. And I think that's where, um, Mm -hmm. like you said, out of that to get the, um, I guess the more established money, the old school, like the, the old money types accepted was that idea of making them seem they're just like everybody else because, it feeds off of that idea that the okay rich people are the ones that came up through the ranks. Yes. That's true. Because, yeah, there's all kinds of different strange, strange permutations of that that we had. Mm-hmm. Because I think, too, what, what you had was that idea of uh, rich people judging you mm-hmm. became the new game show. Right. That it was acceptable for them to judge because that meant if you were really talented and awesome, you would get a taste of that too. Right. And then it would be fair Mm -hmm. that these people are the established money because they're letting the truly deserving in on it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the whole Dragon's Den thing. Yeah, and I think... Or Shark Tank if you're Americans. Or there was there was like like a redneck one because rednecks were cool and there there was a, like like a restaurant one and because mm-hmm. it because once a formula works they're just gonna keep hitting it till it does oh hit. yeah oh yeah <laughs> actually ironically enough do you know where Dragon Set actually comes from mm. Japan really yep Dragon's Den is actually a Japanese TV series if you actually look at the credits you'll see it's credited to like Fuji TV or something like that okay it, they actually. What happened, because uh, I, w- I was a big Dragon's Den fan. I got tired of it after a while, but I really enjoyed it. Because um, mm-hmm. it went to England first, and it was a, it, would, it came from Japan. The British licensed it. It became a huge hit in England. Then the CBC in Canada licensed it. And again, they called it Dragon's Den. And then eventually, once literally half the planet had versions of Dragon's Den, the Americans licensed it and called it Shark Tank. Right. Okay. Apparently still gets good ratings. It's actually doing very well these days. Yeah, because, I, again, I think that became the new the new game show. Oh, yeah, it absolutely is. Like, you don't have quiz shows mm-hmm. anymore, and, like, for the most part. Well, and I'm what like Jeopardy, and, uh, no, there's still a couple quiz shows around. Yeah, but not like they are. They Everything changed to, to those pitch your business or, oh, yeah, yeah, or I'm, sure. a, I'm, I'm a ninja guy doing, like, physical exertion kind of things. Yeah, that's true. And I'm wondering if that's because, like, especially, say, here in North America, um, mm-hmm. you've had this weird push for the last decade that, no, smart, smart people suck. Which is ironic because you also have, like, nerds are awesome. Mm, how does that well, work? 
Yeah, and, and that's because I remember, like, that was one of my favorites back in, in the States in, like, the 2008 election. Mm-hmm. One of the running themes you saw come up from people running for position was, experts, what do they know, think they're so smart? Well, they're experts. Yeah, yeah, but, and, and yeah, and that always kind of, kind of struck me. Mm, and I, I and I'm, I'm wondering if that's why, like, the quiz show, if it's not one of the old established ones, like, um, mm-hmm. who wants to be a millionaire or Jeopardy, mm-hmm. there haven't been new ones. It's been all these, these other ones. If it comes out of that, that kind of attitude. Oh, boy. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, mm-hmm. the whole who wants to be a millionaire thing, which again came from England, if I remember right. Yeah. Um, there, the lot, you got to remember that also post, uh, financial crisis because I think that stuff started post financial crisis. The networks were hurting for money, so they were looking for anything cheap that they could stick on. And those quiz yeah. shows are really cheap compared to like drama and everything. Reality TV had kind of worn out its welcome. They needed something else that was cheap to put on, and they quickly discovered that hey, people ha- people haven't seen quiz shows in prime time for a while, and they seem to like it. So let's just run with it. Yeah, um, you got to remember that a lot of what appears in the media is often driven by finances yeah um even the whole okay here for example even the whole uh going back the whole conspicuous displays of wealth like and what i was talking about earlier um the portrayal of everything has to be nice and shiny and everything some of that also comes from the fact that those shows and this goes back a while are often involved in um those shows are often involved in product placement yeah, and you got to yeah. remember, you cannot stick your the products of the people that you're getting money from in a bad light in any way, shape, or form. Right. Okay. And you also can't put them in a bad in a bad situation. So, for example, I don't want my Coca Cola bottles being displayed in a CD tenement. Right. You know, I want them being drunk by good middle class people. Right. I don't want my car being displayed by you know people who are living in you know uh unaffluent conditions because that would imply that it's actually something that poor people drive i want my car portrayed in good conditions and as a weird side effect of that it forced the media i mean the stuff the movies the television everything that's using these products and getting these product placements and needs the money for them it's forced them to kind of glitz and glamour up the worlds in which the characters live in whether they wanted to or not yeah. Um and those project placements for a while and I'm presuming still are are a big part of the money that uh, help put these shows together. Like yeah, I mean um the classic that they go back to and this is the thing that I remember this is the very first example of product placement I remember from when I was a kid that I heard and I remember which was <laughs> uh cuz when I was a kid there was this show that many people listening to this probably know as well called The Dukes of Hazard. Mm. And there was a rule that um, I'm trying to remember which it was, but whatever the whatever the maker of the the General Lee, their brand of car could never be smashed in the Dukes of Hazard. They could only oh, okay. smash the they could only smash the cars of the rival brands, right? Of the other okay. different car companies, but they could never have their cars smashed in the Dukes of Hazard. So if you saw whatever the General Lee was, I'm sorry, I'm not a car guy. I don't remember mm. what brand it is, but whatever that one. And of course, the General Lee itself, they had like sixty of the damn things because sma- <laughs> they kept smashing them doing those stunts. But that's neither here nor there. 
um, you would never see that car actually damaged in a significant way. Why? Mm-hmm. Because it's supposed to represent that that brand is awesome. Even think back in the actual show, the General Lee is never damaged. Yeah. Not significantly ever. Yeah, that's true. It can't be because of product placement. Mm-hmm. It's it's supposed to show how awesome that particular car and that particular brand of car is. Yeah. So <laughs> that shaping reality. I mean, there's a whole bunch of you said earlier about how society is a whole bunch of different like uh, forces working against each other and with each other, etc. That kind of seem to work together as a mass. Well, mm. the same the truth is, media is the exact same way. Yeah. There's a ton of little things behind the scenes that sometimes are sinister sometimes are incredibly innocent or just accidental that are happening mm-hmm. and those things are shaping the perceptions of the world and perceptions of reality yeah because and they're shaping the way people see things it's ironic yeah it's it's funny too when you mention the product placement because um until the later 80s going mm-hmm. into the 90s product placement was big but it really wasn't um, as as big as it was. Uh, case in point, anybody under the age of 30, mm-hmm. if they watch a, a TV show from the 80s, they probably find it weird that you'll see, like, the character will have, like, a, a bottle of Coke, mm-hmm. but it won't say Coke. It'll be taped up. Yeah. Because they didn't have a, a deal to use Coke. Mm-hmm. In in the show, but they wanted something that everybody in the audience would recognize as normal. Coke's the big brand. You want something like that there, but you can't use the product, so you'd blank it out. Yeah, because the, the deals were weird that way. Actually, if you yeah. watch any Food Network shows, you'll see they'll still do that. Like mm-hmm. especially the cooking competition shows, they'll yep. all every all the products will have either fake, will generally have fake labels on them. I'm a big fan of uh, Cutthroat Kitchen. Uh-huh. And it's funny how if you actually pay attention, you'll notice they all have fake labels on them, all the products. It's yeah. because they either don't want to bother with uh, all the legal crap they have to go through with using those products or whatever, you know, they're, mm-hmm. or, or they don't have the rights or whatever. They, um, it's, which is ironic. You would think that they would be perfectly happy to, you know, get money from those people as sponsors. But for one reason or another, maybe they don't want to deal with the influences I just talked about. Yeah, or sometimes the sponsor will demand money to use their product. Yeah, that happens too. It's it goes both ways. Because yeah. sometimes uh, they have to pay for it. Sometimes they demand money, and so yeah. Because yeah. the funniest example, if you watch like any kind of reality show, you'll see it. Like mm. they'll like pull a guy out of a car on cops, and his T-shirt's blurred out, and it's because it's a brand that they don't have the rights to use. Yep. Well, or they don't want a lawsuit. Yeah, and especially on cops, you know this, you know, um, criminal uh, or sir, suspected criminal that they've just mm-hmm. pulled out of it is wearing a say Nike T-shirt or something. <laughs> Nike does not exactly want their T-shirt associated with you know that kind of stuff. So there's several levels here. First, the Nike will be pissed off at the production company. Mm-hmm. Second, they'll be pissed off at the network, say Fox, for example, for airing it and therefore become less likely to actually buy air ad time on Fox. Right. And it has a whole chain effect of pissing other people in the media and marketing and industry and everything off. Mm-hmm. And so I bet in a lot of cases like that, they probably, this is total wild ass guess, they probably actually could show it if they wanted to. It's just that there would be repercussions potentially yeah. and they just don't want to deal with it. Yeah. I think it probably that would probably come under fair use. 
I mean, there's a certain amount of fair use as far as those product labels and all that go, but it, it just comes with complications and they just don't want to deal with it. Yeah, because even fair use, like, that's why if I'm showing the news mm-hmm. and the, the, the axe murderer who's taking a school bus full of kids hostage is wearing, like, yeah, Nike t-shirt, I don't have to blurt that out because it's the news. But shows like that, I think, are still considered commercial shows. Mm, maybe, yeah. And, yeah, and it falls into that. That sounds about right. Yeah, because the, the first really, really bit of... uh of product placement I can remember was Top Gun. Okay, I the can movie. see that. God damn, there was a Pepsi symbol in every scene of that film. Mm-hmm. There's even a shot where, where I, I don't know what the, the two douchebags in, in that were called, but they're sitting at a table and they're talking back and forth. And each time the camera changes to a close-up of the one guy, there's a Pepsi machine behind him. You're like... Either that thing's moving, like a la mm-hmm. Macross, or there's like 18 Pepsi machines in there. I'm surprised you didn't tell me that it was the Pepsi machine behind the one guy, and then the other shot of the other guy, you can always see the Pepsi logo on the glass in front of him. I was expecting <laughs> you to say that. No, it was but the yeah, machine. It's the actual machine. It's like jumping back and forth, because apparently yeah. there's two. Yeah, there, there's even a part where um, the, the commander storms out of his office, and he like bumps into this little nerdy-looking Air Force guy. Mm-hmm. And the guy's got a tray of food, and he spills it, but he spills it in such a way that he's holding the tray up, and there's a big Pepsi logo on it. Jesus. And that's my, now my thought nowadays is I don't remember being on any base seeing corporate sponsorship like that, but maybe the American military is different. I don't know. But, well, maybe. Um, they do allow, or did for a little while in some places, they actually have uh, corporate sponsorship of uh, schools. Yeah. Schools could be corporate sponsors, so you could have McDonald's High School. Yeah. You know, sponsored <laughs> by McDonald's, that can happen. Um, Shudder. <laughs> yeah, it's a scary idea, but there you go. Yeah. So, just... yeah, product placement is a big part of it, I think. I think it's yeah. an underrated part of uh, what's happened. Yeah. Because um, any show has had a ton of, uh, you know, scrounging to make money to produce it put into it because remember yeah. they want to make it for as low cost as possible so that they can make their money back in a big profit from commercials so they're always yeah. looking for different sources of revenue yeah so yeah i mean and if it requires changing the show a little bit so that you you get a you know couple hundred thousand dollars from pepsi then hell yeah you do it yeah and it 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 ties into in the 90s you had um oh, i believe the term was a life brand which I don't mean the life brand from Shoppers Drug Mart, but the idea that every company wanted their product to not just be a product. But part of a lifestyle. Yeah, and and that was again where I think um, you had that starting up in the 80s when you had the grunge thing. It was originally kind of opposed to that, but by the 90s, everything kind of got sucked into it. That Yeah, that you would show that whatever your product was, it would be part of, of, you know, not just a lifestyle, but again, a very obviously well off lifestyle. Well, exactly. You don't want those people using the product. Otherwise you wouldn't want to use it. Yeah. You want it to be portrayed in a, in a cool and interesting way that obviously the people you're marketing to will want it. Yeah. But there was also attempts to branch out, and that was where you got, like, Burger King did perfume for a little while kind of thing. Yeah, you got some weird-ass stuff. But 
Mm-hmm. You remember a lot of that, though, to, to this day, I mean, a lot of that is simply, you know, the new class of um, young executives come in from grad school, MBA programs or whatever, and they're desperate to make their mark. Yeah. And so they convince their bosses to try some new strategy that they thought of. And the new, and the bosses are always like, well, you're the new fresh young blood. You know what hip kids want today. Okay, we'll try making Burger King perfume. Yeah. And that goes on in every company to this day. Yeah. Um, it absolutely does. And a lot of really good ideas have come from it and an incredible <laughs> number of bad ideas have come from it. Yeah. Oh my God, have so many bad ideas come from it. <laughs> but, you know, the McRib came from it, so I, it's not all bad. Mmm, <laughs> snouts and assholes. <laughs> exactly. Mm. <laughs> Which I have to say, no, I, I know what's in it, and I still enjoy it very, very much. Well, this is true. Yeah, the McRib was an <laughs> interesting sandwich. It truly mm-hmm. was. Um, but anyway, so... So definitely product placement has shaped things like corporate money from the outside is shaping it. Um, yeah. well, cause and it, it, influences from the, you know, the owners of these media empires are shaping it. It doesn't help that there are only like six people, I think, who are actually basically are running pretty much 90 whatever percent of the media in the North America. Yeah. That doesn't yeah. help matters. And and it becomes it becomes self-perpetuating because what will mm-hmm. happen is if I can make my product a symbol of affluence – Mm-hmm. then the affluent will gravitate towards my product. That's exactly right, yeah. Uh, the biggest example I can think of that, and this kind of blew my mind, but again, it's being like an old-school cyberpunk, I think, why, was uh, mm-hmm. the song Air Force Ones by Nelly. Okay. Air Force Ones was a brand of sneakers, uh, and and he did a whole song dedicated to his sneakers, and... When you got to the late 90s going into the 2000s, a lot of the rap guys would do that. They would just, like, product drop left and right, eh? Mm-hmm. And it was this idea. It was it was conspicuous affluence. Air Force Ones, as I recall, also called it cost as much as my house. Right. But it just seemed weird to see that because when, you know, I was growing up, the standard was you made the ad after your career tanked and now you needed the money. Mm-hmm. There was a way to cash in. Yeah, and then it got worse when you got into like the the later two thousands because was it Feist that their big hit song was an iPod ad? Everybody, I think it was. I think you're talk. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, it was that. What was it Let Me Go or something? It was called. Yes, I know the one you're talking. You're talking about the one they played with the ad where it's the silhouettes dancing around on the white background. No, and there was a bunch. There was a mm-hmm. bunch of those. This was the one where they were like zooming in, and as they zoom in, it would turn into a different shot. And okay, but yeah, the I, those ones too. Like, but it was that idea that mm-hmm. if you were a musician, to do something like an ad was mm-hmm. selling out, and it was bad. But for the last you know two decades, that's been the goal: cashing in. Yeah, like as soon as possible, because there's. There's like people at work will bring like their music in or play the radio and at different points I'll be like, Oh my god, I feel like I need to buy a Miata now. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's and it's it's that to me seems really, really odd mm-hmm. that we've gone from that point where marketing again was, was considered bad because it was considered that it, it interfered with the purity 
of of your art mm-hmm. to nowadays where the goal is getting paid. So if you sell out, good for you because now you made an ass load of money. I think there's an idea, and whether this comes from outside or whether this comes from within society, uh, society. Well, I, I I'm not sure. Um, which is that right now there are i put this there are giants by Mm -hmm. by which i mean financial giants okay and they exist at a level that even a pop star that couldn't actually reach okay Mm -hmm. or even inventor couldn't reach whatever i mean there are you know the bill gateses and the mark zuckerbergs and um oh the guy invented jeff bezos who runs amazon there's Mm -hmm. all there's these guys that are literally worth more money than god right um and at a certain point, it became not about becoming these guys, but about becoming the stooge for one of these guys. Like basically uh-huh. being touched by one of these financial gods that you know, will then give you all the money you want and then you don't have to work for it anymore, right? That's part right. of the ideal. Again, it's part of the American ideal. Remember, that idea has been there for a very long time. Yeah. The, the ultimate hope of every American is to basically cash in in some way find some way to make your money and then spend the rest of your life enjoying it right that's the american ideal it's it's there with the lottery it's there with business it's there with everything really and i mean even being an artist really no you're not doing it because you love it you're doing it because you'll make a ton of money for it and you'll get famous and get chicks or Mm -hmm. guys or whatever the key point is is that whatever you're into you will get it if you can make this work, if you can be successful. Yeah. It's, it's, and that's the ideal. I think too that, that you're right. And it ties in with, there's always been this weird thing in North America mm-hmm. of, um, if you have wealth, it's because you deserve it. Right. Like that's yeah. always, and and it works backwards in that. I think a lot of times people make, poor judgment calls by saying well that person is wealthy they must be a good noble hard-working person right um it's it's the same idea if you if again i i had a bunch of days where i wasn't feeling too hot so i was watching tv and cops is all that's on so that's where this is coming from mm-hmm. but every episode that pulled like some guy over and for like stabbing a prostitute or buying a shitload of drugs. And the first thing they say is, uh, I'm a good person. I work. And well, cause again, it's, it's, it's that idea that, that if you're, if you're settled, then you can't be bad because you know, a rich guy would never do anything bad. So here's an interesting question for you. Okay. And this may be one of those mind blowing ones. I don't know, but at what point did that become true? Was that the point where the um, the business people will refer to them, um, the capitalist masters of the United States, basically got became terrified of communism and a communist revolution, and mm-hmm. decided at that point that they were going to dedicate all their money and influence and power into making sure that Americans believe that you know the ultimate va- the ultimate. Um, that's the best way to describe it. The that the ultimate value of life was, um, you know, money that you earned, and that being a good person was about money, uh, and that sorry, being a good person was about being a good contributing, functioning member of society, and that you know it was all about making money, and that's basically what I'm saying is 
was that tied in with the whole anti-communist movement that occurred in the 50s and the 60s? Huh. You know, I think... I think... Well, there's two immediate things that spring to mind. Mm-hmm. Because... I'm just tossing it out there. Yeah, because you're talking about the idea of of being rich mm-hmm. as a as a moral as a moral compass indicator. Yep. I think that's why you you'll see things like say in the two thousands why it was okay to be a rich guy if you were a sports guy or a musician mm-hmm. because that cleans up the 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 money at least the idea that yeah. you earned it doing something that we value. Right. Yeah. It's basically laundered um, the money. Yep. Yeah, it's it's the same thing in the eighties. Conspicuous greed was okay because the financial sector was guiding the this sudden boom in the economy. So they were contributing to everybody. So it was okay that they were like filthy rich because because again they deserved it. They'd worked yeah. for it, and they were benefiting everyone. I think that works in different directions because you mentioned that I just had a chance to watch. Uh, the, well, it was the Mystery Science Theater version, but Invasion USA, mm-hmm. which is a 1950s anti-communist. Oh, that proper. one. Okay. I thought you were talking about the Chuck Norris one, but okay. Yeah. Oh, no, no. This is the older one. Okay. Um, and it's funny to watch that because a lot of things that happen in it would be portrayed differently today. Mm-hmm. So there's a scene where um, the government is trying to... Uh, get the, 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 the one businessman, he makes tractors and they mm-hmm. say, well, we're going to need tanks. Then sometime in the future, there's going to be a war. We'd like you to make tanks for, for the government. And he's like, ah, screw you guys. Cause I make so much more money in tractors and you suck. Get out. Mm. And of course, in the end, when the, uh, the unnamed country invades and war breaks out and American society is collapsing, that guy's, his workers uprise and, and, kick him out and take over his company and you see his like broke battered ass going if only i had like made tanks uh, and it's okay. funny and it's funny because that's exactly what you were saying it's this idea that communism was the worst thing ever nowadays if that came that movie came out that scene first off the government would be the villains because that's government bounds on the economy and that's mm-hmm. just wrong and what's wrong. with It would be shown as a sign of communism as opposed to fighting it as it was like 60 years ago. I was going to say the workers just rebelled and took control of the means of production. That sounds pretty communist to me. It is, but the idea of the government telling this guy what to do. Oh, I see your point. Like in the other one, he was the villain for not listening. In a new one, he'd be the hero for not listening because the government's mm. bad. Right, yeah, yeah. And nowadays, if the government came to say, we need you to make tanks, he'd be like, yes, I will make tanks, cha-ching, because I can pad the bill and make a whole shitload of money off you dumb government fucks. Yeah, exactly. And, Which is and, 100% true to life. And and I think that kind of, it's hard to say when this that idea came in. Mm-hmm. I do think for for a long time it was, it was because... Um, capitalism was the opposite of communism communism was evil and that's how capitalism came to be regarded as a political system by most people mm, out of that, that. yeah because it's it's not it's not a political system you 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 can have a, a a communist democracy it's been done um but i think mm-hmm. it some of it might go back to the uh again i think maybe like the 20s with uh ed bernays and the invention of marketing hmm Maybe. 
Um, I'm just wondering, I mean, now that I think about it, you could probably trace some of it back to the Puritans, right? Like, remember yeah. the original Puritans who had that belief in them, especially, and then there's the Quakers that came later on. Yeah. Um, that basically had that idea of, you know, that work is what God put us on the earth to do. Yeah. You know, you know a good day's work is, um, is the most valuable thing a human being can do. Work yeah. is incredibly important. There's that idea. Um, there's a video uh, where, oh, what's his name? Not Randy Emerson. Um, there's a video called Confessions of an Ad Man. Uh-huh. With a, it's a TED talk, and it's a um, it's a video starring a guy whose name I cannot freaking remember at the moment. <laughs> I'll get, I'll remember in a minute. Anyway, so I'll look it up while we're t- while I'm talking. So, um, and in it, he talks about how they actually ran into a problem with the Quakers, uh-huh. which is the Quakers actually had this belief that if you were displaying wealth, that was wrong. Right. Okay. So. Quakers didn't buy anything and it actually was like messing up the whole economy because everyone because you had people who were not consumers right and you were trying to have an economy but the um let's see confessions of an advertising man there it is um so yeah they 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 had to somehow figure out how to actually get them moving again they, they, you know, how they had to figure out how to get these Qua- darn Quakers to start buying crap because if they didn't, it wasn't going to work. Right. Uh, there, Rory Sutherland. It's actually okay. called Life Lessons from an Ad Man by Rory Sutherland. 16 minute TED Talk. Brilliant. If you actually ever get the chance, I highly recommend it. Mm hmm. Um, Confessions of an Ad Man was actually written by David Ogilvy, who is also one of the great advertising men of the 20th century and is worth studying about if you get the chance. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that one by Rose Sutherland is also incredibly funny, both sad and funny at the same time if you get the <laughs> chance, that TED Talk. Anyway, so yeah, anyway, so he talks about that in the video. He mentions it casually about how, yeah, the Quakers were causing a problem because they actually didn't believe in consumerism. Right. Which is probably one of the reasons why Quakerism didn't quite take off in the United States. Yeah. Um, or was heavily suppressed. They're kind of the original commies, I guess you could say. Um, <laughs> so anyway, the key point is is that... So there is some of that idea in American culture. It's always been there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just can't help but wonder if it didn't get ramped up at a certain point of view in the 20th century just because you want people to think of themselves as, yeah, consumers. You right. want that idea that... They are working for a living. The most valuable thing a person can do, again, following the Quaker ethos, is to work for a living. Um, and it shows you're a good person if you're a good functioning member of society by contributing to the economy. Yeah, that's... And if you're not, you're a goddamn commie. <laughs> Get back yeah, to I... Russia, commie face. <laughs> or Canada, damn it. No. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, Canada. Oh, I know dude. That... I know that hits a nerve for you, but <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh damn, 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 you know, Kanakistan. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. But anyway, yep. I, th- I think I think you're right, and I think again, what you're what you're looking at is there's always kind of that that drift in values with whatever group gets prominence mm-hmm. at the time, whatever um, is going on in society. Yep. 
like I say, I think I think you're right, and I think a lot of uh, it's it's not coincidental that the '50s, which was the rebuilding period where like the North American economy took some huge jumps, is also the era of uh, like the most rabid anti-communism. Well, until mostly because the they were scared shitless. Like well, literally, the American government and the affluent of America were scared to death because literally like a third of the planet was having communist revolutions mm -hmm. and they looked out their windows and thought you know those guys could do that to me yeah and, and then, so that's what it was all about yeah and then you sell it to the to the public as the idea that now that they have something they have something they can lose exactly yeah you won't have your two-car garage home in the suburbs you'll be working in the gulag making making galoshes exactly and it has so many benefits. The the whole Cold War, us versus them thing, keeps mm -hmm. everyone focused so they're not paying attention to what their government is doing. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it also helps to stamp out local communist revolutions and prevent them from happening. Because you got to bet, there were probably people planning communist revolutions in the United States. I will well, there, bet there were. There were shit um, tons. There were like but, shit tons of actual communists, not just the ones that they, but, right. they, they found. <laughs> I think most of the ones they found were probably not even real communists. They were probably like, you know, just intellectuals who were co with communists bent to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, true, true, true. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So the way it works out is that uh, the they were terrified of commies. Mm -hmm. Goddamn commies. And I think that there's been um, a streak of that in American culture for a very long time. And I think it still influences us today. I mean, trust yeah. me. Well, actually, you don't have to trust me. Just look at um, the American elections. Mm -hmm. Remember, anything that smacks of socialism is automatically evil. Yep. Even though everyday Americans, literally every day, benefit from tons of socialist policies that the American system has built into it. Yeah. In fact, most of them love those policies. You know, things like fire department. Yeah. Police department. Um, education. Okay, mm -hmm. they don't all love that education thing. Well, they're not going to have it for much longer, so it won't be a problem anyway, thanks to Betsy DeVos. But anyway, um, and, or sorry, school choice. Thanks, mm -hmm. thanks to the school choice movement, they're not going to have that public education system much longer anyway. Mm -hmm. But, you know, roads, water systems, you know, those socialist things that are evil yeah. that everyone has, has worked together to pay for. Guess what? That's socialism, guys. And you love it. You love socialism lots. <laughs> The truth yeah. is, you're just not willing to accept that when you know you're told it's evil all the time because you know certain policies, certain people don't want certain things like you know a Medicare system actually put into place that would work. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I'm I'm drifting into political territory. <laughs> Never mind. Well, that's part of it because again, it's it's that idea of whoever happens to have the microphone at the time. Mm. sells their side of things and then it's a matter does that key up with with things that are, are there or aren't yep that's true because think... there has to be some element of resonation some some resonance with society yeah um, otherwise things won't work and i th i think again like when you talk what what you were just getting at that's part of the problem that people conflagrate something like socialism mm -hmm. with directly with government and it it it's not it's an economics thing yeah, again, it is. But it's, it's just an economic approach. Yeah, but it keys up with all kinds of other ideas, and then that becomes the 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 idea that people like walk around with in their head. Mm -hmm. 
it it kind of goes as as a weird sub sub tangent, and I'm I'm gonna put this out there. I I we were kind of discussing this before. Mm-hmm. Um, the nature of 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 human consciousness, like what what makes us us. Mm-hmm. For for a long time, uh, something like cognitive dissonance was seen as a byproduct. Right. Of human consciousness. Cognitive dissonance being, I guess, in simplest terms, the little lies we tell ourselves to get through our day. Yep. The fact that we can't hold two conflicting ideas in our head at the same time. So we automatically pick one and basically disparage the other. Well, we we can do that. That's part of it. Sour grapes is part of it. Sometimes mm. we do the Orwellian double think. Occasionally, that's true. Where we'll we'll have two conflicting ideas in our heads, tying it into the uh, the conversation we're having. Uh, mm-hmm. If you look in North America, typically uh, thinkers on the right mm-hmm. will be hardcore capitalist. Yep, and they'll be very Christian, which are two conflicting ideas, but somehow you make them work, right? That's true. And cognitive dissonance was thought to be. That that's the the mechanism by which we can kind of do that. It's a pro- byproduct of being sentient. But I sometimes wonder if cognitive dissonance is sentience. That it's that idea that we really are just kind of a bundle of biological responses and reflexes that cognitive dissonance lets us squish together into what we think is a personality. I have no answer to that. I, I don't either. It makes me kind of sad because it goes bad places, but it, it ties in with this mm. because again, it's, it, it's, it, it would explain why we can do that. Why we can take two conflicting things that appeal mm-hmm. and kind of mix them into one total that makes sense to us. Well, we're definitely looking at a system with a human consciousness. I mean, um, mm. where there is, Going back to what we've said all along, there's a whole bunch of little subsystems that our brain kind of patches over and makes look like one big system, when in reality it's a whole bunch of little ones instead. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that cognitive dissonance is part of that patching over system. It's part mm-hmm. of the system that kind of makes everything seem seamless, when in reality there are a whole lot of seams. It's yeah. actually a, a quilt, not a one piece. Yeah, and then every once in a while, somebody figures a way to pick apart at that seam, and that's why we think spending $200 for a pair of sneakers that are just as good as the $20 pair somehow has some kind of intrinsic extra value. Yeah. Hmm. Oh. There's a happy thought. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> so, and I thought, I thought of that, too, because that kind of lends itself towards behaviorism. Mm-hmm. Which every psychology class I'd ever taken, mm-hmm. half of it's based on behaviorism, even though at the beginning of the class they always say, "Ah, oh, but Skinner was disproved. We don't really put a lot of stake in, in that kind of theory. There are two systems that they will always poo-poo. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is behaviorism. Right. And the other is biological determinism. Yeah. And... I have come to the conclusion that the reason they poo-poo those two systems is because if they're correct, it would be freaking terrifying. Yeah. Those yeah. are the two those are the two systems or two things that that scare the hell out of social scientists especially. Uh-huh. Um because if they're correct, it basically makes it makes us little meat bots. Yep. And so Therefore, they have to be wrong, no matter mm-hmm. what, no matter whatever, whatever, whatever else. They have to be wrong. 
Mm -hmm. Because if they're not, then Domo Arigato, Mr. Roboto. That's all I have to say. (laughs) Well, a little more than that, but still. Mm -hmm. Um, The key point is, is that, yeah, that, you know, there, there are certain things I've noticed when it comes to social sciences that are, the dogma says are wrong because they have to be wrong because if they're right, it goes in really uncomfortable places. Yep. Or would make certain things very difficult to accept. Yeah. Anything that uh, impinges on human free will, we will do our absolute best to disprove and pretend doesn't exist and stick our fingers in our ears and go, la, 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 um, Because we don't want to deal with the idea that free will might be an illusion. Mm-hmm. Or that we might not actually be as sentient and independent thinkers as we think we are. Well, and I mean, even if it's if if it's right a little bit, it tends to scare us because it means that other people can assert control of what we think. There's that too. And we'd never, we'd never want that to happen as we like wear our Swatch watches and super expensive sneakers and $200 flannel shirts. I'm an individual. (laughs) Well, exactly. That's exactly (laughs) right. I mean, we would never want people to be able to thought control us. Um, Mm -hmm. Go Patriots. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Anyway. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, it's unfortunate, but <laughs> we are n- probably a little more susceptible to certain things that we like to think we are. Oh, definitely. And society is filled with a ton of myths, especially about human thinking and human nature, that are basically, as you said earlier, the little lies that we tell ourselves. Mm-hmm. Including that rich people are not actually alien reptiloids that are pretending to be human, <laughs> that are basically treating us, the rest of us, like cattle and are slowly, are slowly picking us off one at a time. <laughs> well, that's that's the I- irony, too, is people will, like, uh, poop Make on up the weird ri- conspiracy theories? Oh, that, too. But, but people will, like, poo-poo the rich for being these horrible folks for doing exactly what pretty much any one of us would have done in that exact same circumstance. Probably true. Um, you know, even when I say earlier, as I said, or, you know, the rich are not like you, mm-hmm. that's because their circumstances have changed them so they're not like you anymore. There is a yeah. certain point where you just become a different kind of person because your environment and your situation has changed so much that you are no longer like a normal person in that mm-hmm. sense. You you haven't become like an alien or something like that, but in some <laughs> ways you have become a different kind of person. You've been shaped by those forces. You can't yeah. help it. I mean, yeah. this is why it's so rare for a celebrity or sports star to stay, you know, um, a humble, loving, normal individual once they achieve fame, especially big fame. Because yeah. it changes you. Yeah. The money, the fame, everything, it really changes you. It changes your perception of people. It changes your perception of the world. It changes everything. How can it not? Yeah. Um, I was, what was it? Uh, I had an idea there that I, I just something gone <laughs> out of my head. So anyway. It's um, the but, lizard people. No, I hope not. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, that's it. I was just reading actually an article talking about that today where there, someone was pointing out that uh, in the comments section that um, can you imagine living every day of your life with other people who are complete strangers walking up acting as though they know you <laughs> and talking to you and expecting things from you and trying to get close to you. Mm-hmm. You know, can you imagine what you, that would do to your perceptions of humanity? Yeah. 
Um, and when you think about that, suddenly, you know, Tom Cruise makes a whole lot more sense. Well, kind of. <laughs> okay, there are some parts that don't. But still, I mean, yeah. the idea that um, he would rather live in a uh, fantasy world than live in reality. In fact, Tom Cruise, Michael Jackson, many, many celebrities who basically hide themselves away and have very strict private lives or very odd private lives are the, often the result of that. I mean, it's that yeah. constant pressure of you just can't deal with other human beings because they all just want a piece of you. Yeah. And it's because they want a piece of your wealth. And the truth is that situation will change you. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter how you were raised. I mean, you will be changed by that system. It's part of the trap of wealth and part of the yeah. penalty you have to pay. Yeah. I can definitely, um, I can see that's uh, kind of probably where our, uh, our love-hate relationship with the wealthy and wealth in general comes from. Mm. That... Well, Go, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, well, yeah, there's a huge amount of it that's just envy, right? Yeah. I mean, it's mostly, you know, we wish we were that person. It really mm -hmm. is that simple. We wish we had that kind of money. I mean, there's not a single person listening to this podcast who hasn't, who hasn't had the thought, if I had a million dollars or if I, you know, if I had Bill Gates money, what would I do? Mm. Guess what? Congratulations. You envy the rich. <laughs> Duh. True. Like everyone does. We all want to have that kind of money and that kind of power and freedom i mean money is a superpower as you know batman or tony stark will tell you yeah um, money truly is a kind of superpower and it lets you do things that normal people can't yeah and we all dream of being that kind of powerful free control uh, controlling person i mean controlling as in person who's in control of themselves we, uh Mm -hmm. A person who is in control of their own life and their own destiny, or at least they think they are anyway. Self-determinant. Self-determinant. There's the word I'm looking yeah. for. Thank you very much. Yeah, to have self-determination. We yeah, all dream of that, and that's part of it. Yeah, because most people, if they had like, and this is what happens, you find out with like lottery winners. If they had like mm -hmm. endless wealth, they would do nothing. They, they, they'd just consume. Yep. And that goes back to the whole worry about the whole basic minimum income system, which will be another whole podcast. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. The idea is if we just give people what they need to survive, won't they just all sit at home and play Xbox? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, yeah, probably a lot of them will. Yeah. And there's certain uh, powers that be that think that would be great because now they're not getting in my face and protesting and things like that. So even that kind of lifestyle that a lot of people would find horrifying, sit at home, do nothing. There are elements that propagate it. Yep. There are. And uh, we, even within the upper classes, I, this is why I think sometime within the next maybe decade or so, maybe it might be a little longer. There are the right in the United States. Now, when I say this, I'm referring to the corporate right, of course, mm -hmm. um, will suddenly do an incredible about face on the whole idea of uh, basic minimum income and all that. Mm -hmm. I really do think that they, they will suddenly realize, you know, this creates an entire class of people who are totally de dependent on us, who we can just sell shit to and make, and, you know, make money from. Why are we fighting this? Yeah. Well, there's, there's another step to that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, uh, and it's disturbing me how often I reference this game on the show. Uh, in Dark Conspiracy, what ended up happening is the super corporations take over mm -hmm. because they have what they call proles, which are they'll give you an apartment, and they'll give you like food and entertainment, 
And all you have to do in exchange for them taking care of you for the rest of your life is sign your vote to them. Uh-huh. And that was how the corporations took over because they would literally buy everybody's vote and then just give them to the candidate that they thought would be most compliant. Hmm. <laughs> it would work and it may work. We'll see how it goes. Mm-hmm. And that makes me sad being an old school cyberpunk like I am. Yep. <laughs> well, yeah, because you're about to watch it come true. Mm-hmm. I don't quite think that'll happen, but then again, in the current political climate, as I mentioned earlier in the show, anything is literally possible right now. Mm-hmm. We're living in unprecedented times in the uh, American history, mm-hmm. and uh, we will see what exactly happens. Curse Mike Pondsmith. Yeah, well, that dude got way <laughs> too many things right. He but sure unfortunately, did. not enough cool cyber limbs or poser gangs. That's the problem. We didn't get not, poser gangs or cyber limbs. Not yet. Not yet. That's very true. <laughs> it's very true. Um, mm-hmm. Although, one thing he did get right, though, is multicolored hair. I yeah. Don't know about, I don't know about Windsor, but my city of London is just filled with people with, like, pink, purple, yellow, and all these... Biz- you know, bright yellow and all these bizarre unnatural hair colors now. It's like living in anime land. It is. And again, everything's cyclical because I remember back in the 80s mm. that there were people. I had a friend who had a like foot high blue mohawk. Yeah. Well, probably I think the dyeing technology has gotten a little better and easier now than yeah. it used to be then, too. Yeah. He had to use um, rubber cement to hold it up. Yeah. Then we're now, it would just require slightly stiffer gel, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but yeah. Anyway, we're wandering off track, so we should probably mm-hmm. bring this one to a close. Okay. Um, well, there's one so, more one more okay, thing yeah. I always wonder about. Mm-hmm. Go, when, you, when you talk about like depictions of of wealth and affluence, mm-hmm. what the hell's the deal with Richie Rich? He's exactly what I just talked about a minute ago. Uh-huh. He's the kid's idea of the ultimate being rich fantasy. Okay. Remember, he's he's a super character. His superpower is wealth, literally. Like, mm-hmm. literally, he's the richest kid in the world. He's So he can do anything thanks to his money. Right. And so as an end result, he does. He's using his superpower of wealth to have incredible adventures and do amazing stuff, just like we wish we could do if we were that rich. Oh, I'd be a villain. I wouldn't be a hero. <laughs> well, there's... There's that. But the mm-hmm. key point is that's what Richie Rich is. He's just a kid's fantasy. It's, it's mm-hmm. the kid version of if I had a million dollars, what would I do? That's interesting. I could see that. Why? What did you think he is? Well, I, I'm not 100% sure because it's it's one of those uh, – I remember years and years ago we had a discussion about this with Chad. Mm-hmm. And that Chad used to hate Richie Rich because all of his friends are poor. Mm-hmm. Why? Right. why? Why is there poverty in that universe? Why doesn't Richie Rich give money to all his friends or take care of all of them or make sure that, you know, poor point poor kid and everything, uh, poor poor boy or whatever his name is, oh, it's, doesn't uh, suddenly become rich? And, freckles and peewee. Freckles and peewee, yeah. But not just that, but why is there like a poor town? Like, if you've got that level of money, you could basically re-engineer all of society into a cashless society. You could, but that would destroy the whole purpose. It's mm-hmm. the same reason why Superman doesn't actually clean up all the crime in Metropolis. Mm-hmm. If he did, there'd be nothing for him to do and the story would end. Right. 
It's the same reason why Reed Richards doesn't uh, up the level of technology of the entire Marvel Universe and turn it into a utopia. Well, he kind of did with uh, Upton with the uh, the unstable molecules. Well, he did. He, well, again, but only things that benefited the whole superhero side and the whole superhero stories and everything. Mm-hmm. That's what he did. You don't hmm. let your characters do anything that would actually um, basically upset the balance of the fictional world you created and make it unrelatable to the real world. Because right. remember, the whole, that's the contrast you're getting is the, that fictional world versus the real world. That's where mm. some of the story is coming from. And if you do that, you change the makeup of the story itself on a fundamental level and it might not work anymore. So as they say, don't mess with the formula, kid. Of course, there's another possibility. Which is? What if, because the, the, the rich family just hoards everything. Yeah, they they do. They're the original hoarders. Yeah, like you could. They have vaults full of giant gold nuggets, net. And and what if what happens is you're dealing with a society that they're actually the the good guys because you've had some kind of event that caused hyperinflation, mm-hmm. and by them stockpiling all of this 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 corporeal wealth and taking it out of the system, they're actually keeping inflation down so that you don't get like one of those, it costs a bajillion dollars to buy a loaf of bread things. That is really bizarre, Don. And then that's why, because remember, Chad had always said that, well, it was weird that like his, his buddies would just always turn them down. Oh no, we can't take your money. What if that's because they're brought up with remembrance of this great disaster now they don't want currency moving around because they're terrified that everything will collapse and they'll be living in mad max times and it was then that casper the friendly dead kid was murdered and eaten by cannibals jesus don (laughs) just saying you've definitely thought this through is this a result of that whole flintstones discussion we had on the (laughs) post-apocalyptic show is that what this is well it it's kind of because you start looking for the conspiracy theory and other like old school like entertainment. Yeah, I'm sure we can probably do this with every single form of uh, every single uh, kids show for, or comic book from back in the day. Well, because um, um, okay, part part of it's also from the uh, the Afterlife with Archie comic, right? Where they Riverdale's this idyllic, peaceful, nothing ever happens place, and I'm going to spoil something for you. So if you, you you're you're a big Archie fan, don't listen. And in that comic, they explained why it is, of course, a deal with the devil. Of course, it is. Which is why there's a family of witches that live just in the next town over. That they're the agents who brokered the deal. Oh, makes sense. Yeah, and then you start looking for that and everything, and then you end up in weird places like. Casper the Friendly Dead Kid being eaten by cannibals. Right. <laughs> I can see that. Okay. On that note... Um, <laughs> yeah, I worked awesome. cannibalism in. Yeah, you worked them in. Congratulations. <laughs> um, on that note, I guess my final thought is being rich is awesome. Not being rich, <laughs> not so awesome. And I guess really that's what it comes down to. The portrayal of wealth <laughs> in the media is all about... You know, portraying what we would do with this kind of wealth. It's lifestyles that we want to aspire to. And while it all seems simple, it's really not that simple at all. There's mm-hmm. so many different factors involved. Right. And I'm just rambling because I've had very little sleep and I have no <laughs> idea what I'm talking about right now. So you probably shouldn't listen to me. It's never stopped us before. Absolutely. <laughs> so on that note, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, Have a happy two weeks and we'll talk to you next time when we discuss the 
topic of what are we talking about next time, Don? I don't know. I'm kind of need a new shtick. Okay, fine. You've disappointed <laughs> me. <laughs> Good night, folks. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at obeythedna.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! See ya!